I took Bill on a ride the other day. We were headed on Highway 33 to see Brother Bailey, and I thought I Google mapped it right, and uh, we went off 33, went on 1916 for a while, and I said, you know, maybe we need to turn around. He got me where I needed to go. Brother Bill did. But I kept teasing him. I said, well, what you don't know is Sherry keeps texting me. saying, have you done it yet? Is he, is he dumped off yet? So I just didn't have the heart to dump Brother Bill off. Uh, but I really had a good time. Uh, and, you know, I, I joke around a lot. And I'm going to tell you why I joke around a lot is, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the state and the direction of the church. And I'm going to try to do this at the end or the beginning of every year. And uh, I'm going to say some things today about the state of the church, at least as far as what I found out since, I don't know, December 3rd when I started here. And it's just a synopsis. It's just a highlights. But something you need to know about your pastor, about me, that probably Karen already knows after almost 38 years, sometimes I feel inadequate. I may stand up here and talk real confident, tell jokes and have a lot of fun. Sometimes I feel inadequate. I really do. Uh, when we came back that first Sunday after you did vote me in, and I just sat down there in the living room. I'm sitting in my little recliner, my little my little world, and Karen's on the couch, and we're probably getting a little something to eat, and little hanky cow dogs in her lap, and I and I just started crying. And she said, "You okay?" I said, "Yeah, I just I don't deserve it. I do have feelings of inadequacy. That's just how I've always been ever since I was a kid. That's just part of my flesh that I have to deal with all the time." But you'll also find out what you have, that I like to have a sense of humor. I like to make fun of myself for sure, because I learned a long time ago when you were the class clown of 1980 in Owasa High School, you spend more time making fun of yourself. That way you like me, but if I'm making fun of you, you ain't going to like me in high school, right? So I like to make fun of myself. I like to uh, pun. I'm kind of punny sometimes, kind of a dad joke thing. Those are things about myself that you need to know. Uh, I also take what I do behind this sacred desk uh, as serious as I can, uh, try to be as accurate as I can, to be, um, uh, in a way, when I bring you the Word of God, it feeds your spirit. And, and as, we were, as, as David brought out in Sunday school, if all you do is eat what I give you Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, guess what? If I was your dietician and said, oh, you just need to eat Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you're going to fire me as your dietician pretty quick, Right? So you're not going to survive off a meal for Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, are you? You're going to have to eat on yourself. So what I want to do is I want to present the Word of God in such a way that when I do feed you, you kind of go, hey, that tastes pretty good. I get that recipe. And then you go look it up yourself and eat some more, okay? So you can eat the Word of God and drink in the Word of God on a regular basis so you're strong. I had a guy in Kentucky that when I was leaving Kentucky, he was really heartbroken that I was leaving western Kentucky to come back to Oklahoma. He had a Bible. I'd, I'd gotten him a Bible, but he was really growing in the Lord. And he liked my particular study Bible because sometimes we'd be, I used my study Bible for him to have Bible study with me. And before I left, I thought, well, I can get me another one. And there he was with a wife and three kids and barely making a living, catching fish. I mean, he would catch these big old uh, mud cat and bring my house. Here, pastor, here's your fist. I said, oh, that's okay. You, you feed your family. That's okay. I don't have to clean that thing. I don't think it was huge. But I, I, I talked to him about why he was so excited about reading God's word. He had become a Christian. He said, I don't know. It's just what, sometimes when I read something, it jumps out the page. And I said, well, what's your favorite fruit? He goes, strawberries. And I said, when you eat that strawberry, that taste, that feeling, yeah, that's what it feels like. I said, here, 
you can have my Bible. And this guy cried like a baby that I was giving him. I thought, well, it's just a Bible to me. I can get me another one, right? But to him, it was like I was handing him something. What I was giving him was, I've been feeding you from this Bible. Now, eat yourself. Eat. Take in. Grow. And so what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to talk about the state of the church and the direction of the church. Now, my, uh, my synopsis of the state of the church is over a 28-day period from December 3rd to December 31st based off visiting with different, one of you, uh, different ones of you or some of our homebound. It's just conversations we've had, and it will not bring out any details, obviously, but I'm going to kind of give you a synopsis of the last three years as I have heard it and perceived it myself. It will not be a, a synopsis of bringing out anything other than just uh, the highlights it's not being brought out to stir up anything because as I conclude with this state of the church, I'm going to give you three things that I'm here to do, okay? And I'm going to tell you uh, in a moment when I, do, when I tell you those three things, I have been wired, I have been disciplined to do what I'm, I'm going to tell you I'm going to be able to do. That, that's why I believe I am here by God's will. The state of the church. Well, as I said, over 28 days, I have visited homebound people, some people that are a little bit more limited in their moving around. I've visited other people like Bill and my truck and things. You know, had him. I had, oh, I had a captive audience in my truck that day, but Bill figured me out real quick. I could be talking about this and go to this and back to this and back to that like a pinball machine, wasn't I, Bill? Me and Bill were pretty good pinball machine wizards there that day. But, you know, during those conversations, I hear things. I see things. As a hospice chaplain, when I go into a home uh, or a facility, I've got to observe things. I've got to wait till things are invited. I've got to ask the right kind of questions so they'll ask the right kind of questions. And, and it's just a skill set that I've picked up over the years. And over these last 28 days, this is what I've gleaned from the last three years before I came here. In the last three years, and I've got this all written down so I could say it specific so I don't chase any rabbits or get off on a pinball machine. But in the last three years, you as a local body, you have lost a long-standing pastor. And I wrote this beside pastor. He's a pastor because I've, listen, I listened to Brother Haley's sermons on purpose because I wanted to know what y'all believe, what y'all would be learning, right? I listened to Josh's sermons. I've listened to Brother Marty's sermons. But when I say you have lost a long-standing, tenured pastor, what I mean by that is someone with personal integrity. I know that because of what I hear him preaching, what you all told me about him. A man of personal integrity, passionate belief, and proper doctrine. He was an overseer. He was an under-shepherd. And he led his flock. So that's the first thing I figured out in these 28 days. Three years ago, you lost... That man, a man of integrity, a man of good, proper beliefs that loved his flock. And as he, as he served you, you also, as he passed away in your grief of, of losing someone that we don't want to lose. You know, the definition of loss is L-O-S-S, right? Losing of someone significant. That's what a loss is. You lost Brother Halen. He's no longer with us. I wish he was here 
Because I would sit there like iron sharpened iron based off how I saw him preaching and what he was preaching. But when he passed away, another man stepped up, a preacher of integrity, of not only integrity behind the pulpit, because I've heard him preach, I've spoke to people about the very ministry that he would do in homes and to their children and things. This man stepped up as an overseer, and during that time, in the midst of uh, perhaps misunderstanding, uh, misdirection, you lost him. In the midst of losing him, you lost other people. And hopefully you see where I'm going here. I'm a former hospice chaplain. I deal with loss every day. I help people walk through their grief. And then a year ago, you lost him physically. And just these two scenarios here, I know it hurts because those people were significant to you. They loved on you. They were there when your baby was born. They were there when you were sick. They were there Sunday after Sunday. And I know I'm just standing on their shoulders. That's all I know. And, and, and And I am proud to stand on their shoulders because I know from week from week to week, they were preaching the word of God and heralding a clear, compassionate gospel that the Bible teaches, God's gospel, Paul's gospel, Jesus' gospel. And I know that hurts. I know it still hurts. And you know what? It'll never go away, and I hope it never does, because if it does go away, that means it wasn't significant. Now, it may get better sometimes. You may have good days. You may have bad days, just like when you lose a a loved one, right? I listen to 105.7 sometimes because that's the 60s and 70s music, right, when I was a kid. But there's a song every once in a while that comes on, different ones. And you know who I think of? My mama. It brings a tear to my eye or it brings a memory. Because when I was little, little, and Sissy was at school, we were cleaning the house, and mama was playing Boots Randolph and Floyd Kramer on the little record replayer. Those songs remind me, that's what triggers me about my mama, music. And sometimes we would dance after we cleaned. One of the things that triggers me about my father is he would work all day, 12 hours a day, a data processor in a big mainframe computer room. But he would come home, put on a little, uh, little nasty glove that wasn't much of a glove, and he would let me pitch to him. And at 15 years old, I could throw a pretty hard slider. And he didn't have no shin guards. He didn't have no chest protector. He didn't have a face mask. And I know it's hit him in the face a few times and everywhere else. But after a long day of work, he would meet me at the at the backstop, and so when I see a backstop or a baseball field, I'm triggered to think about how significant he was amongst many things. I'm sure there are times when you walk in this church, it might be a particular pew maybe where one of them sat or their family sat, and you have memories, you have feelings. As a hospice shepherd, I would tell you that's okay. You know what that means? You're normal that you have these feelings of loss. You're normal, and that means these men were significant to you, and therefore they're significant to me. After you lost these two men, not only one through death, one through relocation, through situations, and then ultimately in death about a year ago, this Thanksgiving, uh, in your original loss, you... Uh, had that minister step up but lost him again. And then in the midst of all those emotions, all those grief feelings, you're also trying to function as a church, function as a family, 
try to move on in life, but yet it's hard to move on when you've lost someone or something very significant. But in that grief process, you called Brother Marty as an, inter- an intentional interim. In other words, he intentioned to come here to help you transition into who would be that next overseer. That was his intention. And that's why he only did certain things here, but not over there, because he wanted you to function as a body. I know that, not because I spoke to Brother Marty, but everything you would tell me, I was like, okay, that was his strategy. He would do this, that, or the other, but he says, I'm not going to do this. You have to do that. He wanted you to function. And part of that function was part of your healing process of working through that grief, working through those losses to get together, to unite. Because listen, grief in a family can divide a family in a hurry. I've been at so many deathbeds before in places that while I'm sitting there maybe singing a hymn to this loved one that's dying or praying with their spouse, the kids are back there saying, and I get the shotgun and I'm going to get, they're arguing about what they're going to get. And I'm like, so I have to go in that room and say, hey, 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 I get it. Go outside and argue about that. Right now, mama's dying. And what Brother Marty did is he said, I'll do this and this. And in the midst of any of the grief and the emotions going on, he, he caused you to do certain things that would unite you to make you work together to function. So that when I did step here, I didn't even know all that stuff happened. All I knew from the public committee is that you all had lost a pastor by death and there had been a split. That's all I knew. I didn't ask any more questions, and I believe prayerfully they didn't volunteer anymore on purpose. So as you brought Brother Marty here, he gave you stability to have a constant presence of supportive love, instruction, direction from God's word and from his, uh, from his uh, presence and ministry to, to move forward from here. It's not to say those people don't matter, but we've got to move forward. As you said, or I, think, I think it was Brother Ken said, you know, Brother Robert would say, forward. And I say, no retreat, advance. You know, there's no retreat in the body of Christ. We either stand or we move forward. There's no retreat. So as you moved forward and sought out a pastor, uh, it, I've got here in my notes that you, you had three different search committees in that journey. And as you brought each man at different times, at different places, the first two times, the church decided twice, this is not the man. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs uh, 16, 33, man casts the lots, but every decision of the Lord. And, and all that's saying, it's not saying that we're going to pull lots out of our pocket, but it's like votes. And the Spirit of God led you to vote yay or nay. You let your yay be yay, your nay be nay. And twice, there wasn't enough yays for those other two men. And even that hurts. It's a loss. A hiccup. We're not moving forward. But although you brought those two men and the church decided twice in number that they're not, you continued to try to collectively bring yourselves together and say, Brother Marty's bringing us constancy. We have a good, good history, a good past, a good founding, a good establishing. So let's move forward. And you brought forth your third committee. And as you brought forth that third committee, 
and they called me, and we began to interact. On that night that you voted, the church spoke. And to be honest with you, um, when Karen and I went back to the nursery to kind of hang out with Nicole and a couple of little ones, you know, for y'all to vote, I knew that the last two didn't reach the 75% threshold. I thought, well, if I make it, it might be 81 or 82. If I don't make it, that's okay. Because you remember, both times, Sunday morning, Sunday, I told you, I want God's will to be done, not mine. And worst case scenario, you don't vote me in, and we've glorified God. Because one thing you'll find out about me, I am not a desperate man. I might be a man that deals with my own inadequacies, but I'm not a desperate man. Not after 38 years of ministry, I want to just keep plugging away. And wherever God plants me, hospice, and i got to be bivocational, that's raw, that's raw bloom if I'm full-time somewhere. So I'm here, and you voted me in. Well, what does all that mean? That's just my synopsis of three years, okay, based off what I need to say and what I've heard. Well, the church spoke, and I answered and said yes. So I want to tell you these three things concerning the state of the church. And here in a moment, we'll get into the direction of the church there in Matthew chapter 5. These three things I tell you. Knowing that I'm building on what many good ministers have built upon already, I am proud to follow their legacy, and I will build on it respectfully. Number two, knowing that I come to you who have had pain and grief, maybe confusion, misunderstanding, because grief expresses itself in all kinds of things, and then it comes back to visit you again. You know how it rotates. Coming to you who have pain and grief, I'm not here to fix you. That's one thing I learned as a hospice chaplain. I can't go in that home and fix anybody, but what I can do is go in that home and try to understand. Meet them where they're at to bring them forward. When I would walk into a home or facility and someone had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and they'd been diagnosed with six months less or uh, the disease takes its normal course, outside of a miracle, I couldn't change that. I couldn't fix that. So what I had to do was sit there with that spouse or those children and say, okay, where do we go from here? How can I support you today? So knowing that you've been through grief, pain, confusion, perhaps hurt, anger, all those things, I'm not here to fix you but I do care, and I want to understand how you feel about those things, and I want to help you find a safe place, which could be me, to express those feelings. And I won't be hurt. I won't be offended. I won't go, well, gosh, I'm your pastor. Big deal, Steve. You're hurting. Water's in your boat, and I need to be there in your boat. The third thing I will tell you is my plan is to understand enough about the past not to change it, but so that with that understanding of the past, we can lock arms together in unity and we can move forward in God's glorious plan and purpose to promote daily healing in those situations and a hopeful future for those outside of the faith that they might come to know Christ so in my limited synopsis here of three years, which I probably didn't do it any justice, but I'm sure stories were going through your head all the time. Because when I preach a funeral, that's what happens. You know, you give a little obituary, a little snapshot, and I tell them, think of these memories. Work with them. As I give you this limited 
synopsis or snapshot of three years, I don't pretend to know more than what I've already been told or even think that I heard. But I am here to talk to you and walk with you as God directs us for his glory and the good of our community as Calvary Baptist Church. So that's my state of the church address. Now the, the direction of the church. I'm here because I care for you. I'm here because God placed me here. And I'm going to do everything within my power to love on you through all those emotions, through all those stories. Don't be afraid to not tell me those stories because it ain't going to offend me. I've been there, done that. This is not my first rodeo. I want to hear how you feel because your feelings are very important how you feel about those things. The direction of the church. I'm going to read verse 13 through 16 if you'd like to stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 13 through 16 in Matthew chapter 5. And then we'll pray. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seasoned, that is, the earth be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we pray that as we come to your word, you will give us encouragement, instruction, correction if we need. But definitely, Father, inspire us to know what you're saying to us as an individual and help me to present collectively what I feel the Lord is directing us as the body of Christ here at Calvary. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've seen the state of the church that is based off my limited knowledge, my limited way to communicate it. And the bottom line is, is there has been a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of grief over a lot of different things. And your pastor cares about that. Your new pastor cares about that. I can't fix it, but I'm here to walk you through those things if you so like me to. Now, I will give you one tool in your grief and in your loss. I call it J-O-Y, because you want to be happy again, right, Joy? So if you're dealing with some emotions, dealing with some feelings, dealing with some questions or emotions of grief and loss during those three years, J, journal your thoughts. Write it down. Write down the good, the bad, the ugly. Journal it down. Get those feelings out on paper. Oh, others need to hear your story. They need to know how you're feeling, right? That's how you deal with grief. You journal it, you talk about it, and then why? Joy, J-O-Y, you can talk to God. He wears a big pair of pants. He can handle it. So that's part of the venues of dealing with grief and loss. You can journal your thoughts. Others need to hear your thoughts and feelings, and you can always talk to God. He already knows what you're feeling, right? So why not sit down with him, even if it is anger, and say, God, this is what I'm mad about. What would be wrong with that? He already knows you're mad, right? He wears a big pair of pants. He's going to say, yeah, I know you're mad. And you're going to have a conversation with God. So that's, that's my little tool for you, the joy tool. 
but the direction of the church. In verse 1 and 2, as we have we've saw the state of the church and we want to move forward, we don't want to retreat. We want to either stand or advance, uh, kind of a military terms. What is the direction of the church? Well, what direction did Jesus give his disciples at the Sermon of the Mount, right? That's what we're going to do. In verse 1 and 2, the Christ disciples are gathered. They are gathered. Look at verse 1 and 2. The Christ disciples are gathered. This is our first direction. Verse 1 and 2. Seeing that the multi- seeing and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, What's the first direction if we are going to move forward, if we're not going to retreat, if we're either going to stand or advance for the kingdom of God, if we're going to promote the gospel, the first thing we must learn as a Christ disciple is that the Christ disciples in that day and the Christ disciples today, we are gathered. We have to gather. It's said there in the text that as they gathered, Jesus was the centerpiece. It said he went up on that hill and they gathered to him. Jesus was the centerpiece. And as they gathered together as his disciples, not only was he the centerpiece, but it said he opened his mouth and he taught them. Jesus was not only the centerpiece, but Jesus is the mouthpiece. So in other words, I did give you a synopsis. That wasn't necessarily scripture. We had some scripture application. But when we gather together, whether it's our music, whether it's our prayer, whether it's time for giving, or it's time to open the Word of God, Jesus must be the centerpiece, and the source of the Word of God is His mouthpiece. That's the first direction we're going to have as a, as a church called Calvary Baptist with old Steve Holstein as your pastor. Our first direction is, is that Jesus says, you're going to be my disciples at Calvary? Well, then gather with Jesus as the centerpiece and Jesus as the mouthpiece. They fought all the distraction to come to Jesus because it says there was a multitudes were there. And listen, in this room, there's distractions for you, distractions for me. These disciples still gathered. Jesus was still center. Jesus was still the one being heard. But they, they fought the idea of distraction because there was multitudes in that, in that area. But they kept their eyes on Jesus. Now, I'm not saying the past is a distraction. It's important, right? But Satan can pervert anything. Satan will counterfeit anything. In our world... We know the Bible says it was Adam and Eve that God brought together. Well, the world tells us now it could be Adam and Steve or Amanda and Evie. And we know the Bible says it was male and female. That's the way God designed it. And the world and the devil and the flesh will distort it every time. He took something good and distorted it, right? Satan did. He'll take your past, which is important. And it has to be processed. It needs to be talked through, prayed about. But it'll also use it to distort, to divide, to cause division and discord. 
We're not going to let that happen because although we're dealing with the past, when we come together, we're going to make sure Jesus is the centerpiece, Jesus is the mouthpiece, and no matter what distractions out there multiple, we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus. That's the direction, first and foremost. The Christ disciples gathered around Jesus and what he had to say. The second Instruction for indirection is in verse 3 through 4. As Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount, going through the Beatitudes, he says in verse 3 and 4, not only does the Christ disciples are gathered, but the Christ disciples are humbled. Look at verse 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He said the disciples not only gathered, but they were humbled. They were humbled because they saw their great need in their, in their poor spirit. They saw their great need to repent, to live a lifestyle of repentance. It's what a Christian ought to do. Once we repent, uh, turn our back on sin and turn our face to Christ, we continue to live a lifestyle of repentance. And the disciples in that day, the Christ disciple, they were humbled. Jesus said if you're, if you're going to be a Christ disciple, if you're going to be a Christ follower... You've got to see your great need to repent. You're really nothing outside of me. You've got to see your great need to repent, and you've got to see your great need to be comforted in Christ. Because listen, if all it took was to humble ourselves and repent to get saved, that's all Jesus would say. If all we did was repent of our sin and never turn to Christ for comfort and peace and reconciliation, we would be a miserable repentance. But we repent so that we can turn can turn from our way to his way. The Christ disciples were humbled, he said. They saw their great need to repent. They saw their great comfort in Christ. They saw that they had a, had a debt to be paid that they couldn't pay. But they also see who brings us hope. So as we come together to make Christ the centerpiece, Christ the mouthpiece, we are going to come with humility, with, with, with humbleness, knowing that we, we still need to live a lifestyle of repentance, and, and in the midst of that, we don't live in sorrow. We find hope in Christ. We find hope with the body of Christ. We find unity. We find fellowship. He says the Christ disciples are gathered. The Christ disciples are humbled. Direction three, the Christ disciples are satisfied. Look at verse 5 and 6. The Christ disciples are satisfied. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied of that hunger and thirst. As we gather with Christ at the center, as we humble ourselves before God, not only in repentance, but in hope, we, we, we come to him in our humility to be lifted by God. He said there, blessed are the meek. That doesn't mean weak. That means strength under control. Those who come to God in humility and, and we're being lifted up in our meekness. We're being lifted up for the kingdom of God. It says there that <clears throat> they not only were lifted up, but in their hunger, they were satisfied. They were satisfied with God and what God had to offer. 
And so as we, as we think of ourselves as Calvary Baptists moving forward, our direction is we're going to gather and let Christ be centered. We're going to humble ourselves not only in repentance, but in hope. And it is in Him, in that humility, that we're going to be lifted. It is in Him, in that humility, we're going to be fed. Verse 7 through 9, the Christ disciple, disciples are promised. We're promised something. As we go this direction, we're promised something. Look at verse 7 through 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, (coughs) for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In verse 7 through 9, the disciples that are centered on Christ humble before Christ, finding hope in Christ. They are promised. They are promised mercy to themselves that leads them to a message of mercy to others. As they show mercy, they will receive mercy. Mercy leads them to God's presence, and mercy leads them into God's purpose, and that is the mercy that we receive, we give mercy. So many times, over the years, especially young in my believing life, where I would try to go and watch preachers preach, you would think that by the time you get done preaching, all they did was shout at the darkness. That's all they did. They told you how bad the world was. It was going to hell in a handbasket. Just shout at the darkness. And there was no hope. There was no sense of mercy. One of the preachers that I learned under was just a a preacher that wasn't full-time. His name was Jim Thompson. He was a retired Nazarene preacher. Me and him would go to nursing homes. And that particular Sunday, he was with me. And I was preaching a text that was talking about hell and heaven and the seriousness of it. And I guess I did okay. But we got in the car as he drove me back to our apartment where me and Karen lived. He said, Brother Steve, he said, every time you pray on hell, you need to pray with, with a tear in your heart. Don't, pray, don't preach about hell to scare somebody or because you're enjoying it. Pray about hell with a tear in your heart. And when you pray about heaven, Steve, pray with all kinds of joy in your heart. He said, be careful. And what he was trying to tell me is, I guess however I preached on hell that day, I guess I preached it hot. I preached it deep, but I guess it didn't come across very compassionate. It was almost like I guess I was enjoying that maybe somebody's going to go there. And he was trying to tell me, don't just shout at the darkness. Present hope. Show some compassion. And Jesus says there that those who are merciful shall obtain mercy. Those of pure heart shall see God. They shall be peacemakers. And they shall be the sons of God. God's mercy leads us to his presence, yes. But God's mercy leads us to his purpose, and that is to spread mercy, to proclaim mercy. To a lost and dying world that, by the way, is already condemned, Mr. Preacher, that's shut in the darkness. They're already condemned already. The Bible says in John 3, verse 19-21, they're hiding from God. That's their condemnation. They don't want to be seen by God. They love their sin. 
Because they're already condemned. They need to point out that they're lost, yes. But they're already condemned, and they need to know that there's hope, that there's a different way, that there's only one way. God promises us eternal life with him, but also promises us a fruitful life for him. As we obtain mercy, we give mercy. We become people that say, be, make, make peace with God. We become ministers of reconciliation. So as the Christ disciple gathered for Christ to be central, as they humble themselves, yes, to repent, but to look to the hope, as they're satisfied uh, through humility, being lifted up and filled, as, they're dis- as the disciples are promised mercy and promised a ministry of mercy, verse 10 through 12, the Christ disciples are overjoyed. Do you see how this begins to progress? How one just builds right on the other? Because Christ is central, because we're humble, because we find our satisfaction in him and him alone, because we're living according to the mercy promise that we have to give away, all of a sudden we become overjoyed. We become very overjoyed. Look at verse 10 through 12. The Christ disciples are overjoyed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is he saying? He said, well, this Christ disciple that keeps Christ center, this Christ disciple that is directed to to live a lifestyle of repentance and hope, this Christ disciple that's satisfied by God, this Christ disciple that's promised mercy and promised a ministry of mercy, this Christ disciple is going to be overjoyed. You know why? We're overjoyed in our ministry. We're overjoyed in our worship before God as we gather because we share the kingdom's glory with others. He said, there's those before you they were persecuted, you share that same glory. You say, well, how's persecution glory? Hey, Jesus said, if you love me, the world system will hate you. That's a promise from God that we don't normally like to claim. We like to be like that athlete that says, I can do all things through Christ our Lord who strengthens me. Hallelujah, give him my million dollars a week or whatever, and that's all fine and dandy. But even that's in the context that he's weak and God is strong. And Jesus is telling us that if we're really going to be Christ's disciples, if we're really going to be overjoyed in the midst of that centric worship, humility and ministry, we're going to be overjoyed because whatever does resist against us or, or comes to persecute us, it's going to be something that we share with those that share the same glory, the same persecution. We share the kingdom's glory with others. And it did say we share the reward of the kingdom with others. Many times we would rather live our American lives as Christians to say, well, back in the 50s, back in the 30s, back in the 60s, back in the 80s. All that's important, right? That's context. But listen, this is 2023, tomorrow 2024. And we live in a world where Adam and Steve get married legally. 
Amanda and Evie get married legally, but also Adam's and Eve's do too. We live in a world that has changed sociologically, not evolutionary, sociologically. The mores, the morals, the taboos have changed. They've been moving around. But you know what? They haven't changed here. And that's why we keep digging to figure out how we're supposed to live, how we're to live rightly before people. But this causes us, I believe, to be overjoyed. You remember one time in the book of Acts, which, by the way, starting next Sunday, we're going to walk through the book of Acts. We're going to continue in Nehemiah on Sunday nights. So if you've ever, never heard the book of Acts preached before, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the full book, we start next Sunday, Lord willing, Crete will rise. We start right there in the book of Acts. Now we're going to talk about the birth and the development of the church. The birth and the, ele- and the development of the church. Because listen, the church grew. And they grew based off what was changing with the church. And they had to make adjustments and add deacons and different things. Then they saw persecution. And one thing you'll find out in the book of Acts, as they preached the gospel, just like when Jesus did, there was only two responses. They either rejected the message or received it. And it's no different in America in 2023 or 24. As we share the gospel, they're either going to receive it or they're going to reject it. And we shouldn't be offended. We might be shocked, we might be hurt, but we're going to get over it because God has called us to be faithful, not number chasers. But we, we are overjoyed because when persecution does come, like when Peter and John, remember they preached in the book of Acts? And it says they striped them, and they, they counted it as, as an honor. Now, I'm not saying anybody's going to stripe you like they did Peter and John, but listen. There's more persecution going on than we think there is. And I'm not even talking about voice of the martyrs type stuff in other countries right here in America. My family has experienced it, and I know you have too. And that ought to overjoy you because you're sharing that kind of glory and reward with people that have gone before us. Last but not least, the direction of the church. As we are disciples gathered to be centric on Christ, humble before Christ through repentance and hope, as we're satisfied, as we're promised mercy, and therefore to give mercy, as we're overjoyed even if persecution comes or misunderstandings come, because it says, he says they'll say things about you that's not true, but they'll do it for my name's sake. In other words, they're doing it because they hate me. In verse 13 through 16, the Christ disciples, check this out, they are effective. They are effective. Look at verse 13 through 16. Jesus says that if you're a Christ follower, you are effective. Look at verse 13 through 16. You are, he doesn't say you need to be, he doesn't say you might be or eventually will be, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth as a believer. But if the salt loses its flavor, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, how shall it be seasoned? That is the earth, how will will the earth be seasoned? It is then, then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are, not might be, need to be, got to work on, you are the light of the world. Now if you are salt and you are light, salt and light will have an effect, correct? Okay. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but a lampstand, 
but put it up on a lampstand and gives light to all that's in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Out of all these directions, out of all these instructions, the first one and the last one are the most important to us as Calvary Baptist Church. As Christ's disciples, we're going to gather and make sure Jesus is the centerpiece and Jesus is the mouthpiece. All this other stuff develops for one purpose, and that is so that we can be effective, so that we can go on mission within the church and go on mission outside the church. How does that mission look like? What does that effectiveness look like? Well, he said there, you are the salt of the earth. Now, he says, if you lose your flavor, you're no good. That will be trampled. What it was is they would, if a salt lost its flavor, it was no good than just maybe thrown on the ground to keep weeds on the, off the road. But listen, he says, you are the salt. Salt is a seasoning. You have something with inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells you. The Bible says the Spirit of God has given us joy, peace, and righteousness. You have something in you through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of God that the world does not have. And as you live out your life, you're, you're, you're being called to be salt. You are the salt, right? So season. You'll be in situations where you're at work, you're at home, you're somewhere, and you're going to be joyful. You're going to be peaceful. You're going to do the right thing. And it's going to throw salt on that culture that you're in. Doesn't matter what culture you're in. You know, I've worked from blue collar to white collar, and now, I guess, backwards collar. And everybody needs to be seasoned with joy, peace, and righteousness. You know why? Because you have enough negativity. You have enough self-pity. You have enough sin in your own life to, to kind of lose your joy, to lose your peace, to lose your righteousness, so to speak, as far as any kind of encouragement. And as the seasoning, we influence our cultures with joy, peace, and righteousness. We're the only ones with that kind of salt. And he says, just season, influence, influence your culture. I'm not saying as your pastor, we're going to change same-sex marriage. Probably never will. Not saying we wouldn't try be a part of that equation. But I'll tell you this, in the midst of all that, we're going to practice what we believe God has told us to practice concerning marriages. But at the same time, we're going to be respectful of those that, I guess, choose something more legal instead of moral. And they're going to know where we stand respectfully. And we're going to season with joy, peace, and right. We're going, to, we're going to season them with the salt of things they don't have. And therefore, we're going to show them what they really need. They need joy from God. They need peace. They need righteousness. We will season and influence our cultures as the salt with joy, peace, and righteousness. And as the light, uh, you could use light for a lot of things. You can use light to expose things, right? And that's that preacher that's shouting at the darkness, right? Shine a light on you. Yeah, there's a sin, you know. No, I think of a light as when you turn it on, these lights are touching everything right now. How, how many are not touched by light right now? You're touched somehow. I don't know how it's touching you, but the light's touching you, right? 
If we're the salt, we're going to season with joy, peace, and righteousness because that's what they need. And as the light, we're going to touch people. We're going to touch people with the truth, with hope, with, with some kind of sense of urgency that eternity matters. As the salt, we're going to season and influence our cultures. As the light, we're going to reason and we're going to engage our communities in conversation about natural things, about spiritual things, scriptural things, and about eternal things that are personal to us. That's what we're going to do. We live out hopefully and rightfully before this earth and we speak out truthfully and credibly towards the world. We are the salt, we are the light. As the salt, we're going to season and influence the culture. As the light, we're going to touch our communities with truth, grace, uh, honesty, personal testimony. We are the salt, we are the light. And the reason we can express that salt And light that we are is because when we gather together as the body of Christ, Christ is the centerpiece, Christ is the mouthpiece, everything else falls into place, and then we leave these four walls on mission to say, I am the salt, I am the light. And we season and we reason. Why do you say reason, Brother Steve? Because it says there in the book of Acts, we'll find out in the next few months or year, Paul had a custom. He went into the synagogues to what? To reason from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. All he had was the Old Testament. Did you know you could use the Old Testament to tell somebody about Jesus? Yeah. The scriptures. We're going to season and we're going to reason. That's what we're here for. We're the salt and we're the light. And as we season, we're going to influence. As we reason, we're going to touch. Because I was talking to my brother about Charles, right? Chuck? We're here to give information. We're here to give truth. Only God can make it revelation and open their eyes to say, ah, what that preacher or what that person is saying must be true. Until the nurse is going to say, well, that's a nice man or that's a weird man or what they might say about us. But we will season and we will reason. We will be salt. We will be light. We will influence and we will engage and touch as the light. What does this all mean? Knowing the state of the church where we're at now, moving forward. What is the direction? Make sure Christ is center peace. Make sure Christ is the mouthpiece. And as he's the mouthpiece, we live a life of repentance and hope. We don't just sit there and grovel. We live in repentance and hope. We live a life that is satisfied with whatever God gives us because it's always the best what God gives us. We live a life of promise that says, I've received mercy Others can have mercy and ministry. We will live out a life that is overjoyed even when persecution or misunderstanding comes. We're going to be overjoyed by it because we know that we share that persecution and misunderstanding with others of like mind and like history. And then we just go into the world and be salt and season, be light and touch. What does this mean to a believer? Well, number one, when we gather together to worship, We will make Christ central, we will approach Christ with humility, and we will share Christ with hope. 
Not disdain, not condemnation. We will share Christ with hope. When we go from this place to go be witnesses, we will season the earth that hunger for faith, hope, and love. We will reason with the world that needs to be touched by grace, mercy, and hope. And then when we gather back together, we will gather back together to worship, to be equipped, to be a witness, so that we can come back again to be worshiping, to be equipped, to be a witness. It will be a repeated, duplicatable process. Now, every Sunday, every day will be different. But the one thing that will never change, Christ is center. You're the salt. You are the light. And the world needs us more than any day in the history of man. They need us not because we can grovel in our own hopelessness. Because listen, when I, when I did hospice, there was a lot of hopelessness. I couldn't change a thing. But one of the things I found out many times is they would come up to me later on and they would say, thank you, Pastor Steve. You were so kind. Or one would say, you're very real. You're very genuine. Um, can I keep your phone number? Which was a no-no. You know, they weren't supposed to have contact with us. Well, I said, I'm going to send you letters every once in a while. So if you call me, you call me, you know. It's the same way here. I am available 24-7 if you have an emergency. I'm available on my calendar if you just want to hang out with me. And the best way to reach me is either text me or call me. Now, I've had a, we've had a few visitors here today, and I've asked them to fill out a card with their name and address, please, because you are going to get a handwritten letter from your pastor. Handwritten, my little lefty hand. Uh, I know Jay and Jasmine got one this year, this week, or this year, I guess. But listen, when we come together as believers, we've got to focus on Jesus. They'll have all these other things going on. That's why we spend time praying. But listen, we've got to focus on Jesus. What would this message be to a non-believer? Well, you must see your lack of being right with God. You must see your need for the mercy of God. So we would invite you during this time as, as, as uh, Ken and Robin and uh, our birthday girl, Crystal, comes forward. I want you to know this. If you're, you're not a believer and you're like, I don't know anything about this hope and you know, stuff, hey, you come see me today right up here. And I'll point you in the scriptures as to what Jesus said you must do. I can't lead you anywhere that, that the Spirit of God has not already given us. But you need Jesus. Don't wait. You respond today. If you're here today, you're a believer, you have a question, you have a concern, even if you can't walk up here to me, wave me down. I will go back and minister to you wherever you're at. I told someone the other day, I said, have wheels, we'll travel. Okay? So y'all stand for the hymn of invitation. Whatever your need is, you come.